Well, Keyshawn, you're back in Chicago now, uh, off of your retreat, and you were telling me that you were listening to a recording, and um, again, by listening to it again, you said that you knew it before, but when you heard it another time, it really sunk in. And that's the whole point or the issue of the repetitive part of it, is that we keep doing this stuff over and over again. And it and it's like <clears throat> the 19th time we heard it, we heard it in such a brand new big way that it's almost like the first time that we've heard it. Because now it's almost like we really heard it. <laughs> yeah. Before we heard the knocking on the door and now we're hearing the knocking on the noggin. Exactly. And so this is the quality of the repetition. This is why the, the Dhamma is so small and yet it's so vast. It's because it's just music, that's all. And music is just one note after another. That's all there is to it. <laughs> now, there's another quality to that, and that is the way that the human mind works is in several different ways. One is, is that it, uh, that we have an automatic programming that's just automatically there. This is called the instinct. It's coming through our genes, through the DNA, and um, all of that kind of stuff. And then there is another kind of learning, which we would call rote, rote learning, that whatever happens, we let it in. When mommy and daddy are yelling, little Johnny lets it in. He hears it. Okay, and that in fact we do this storage mechanism that the human brain has the, the quality of taking in information, storing it for a long time, and then feeding it back out again. This is a different quality than the original programming, which is instinctual. This also is a kind of um, processing of programming that uh, all animals, higher animals, apes, dogs, uh, mammals, that kind of stuff, to where they have learned behavior. Animals really learn their territory. And that's uh, part of the learning process. Now, there is a third thing that happens that only humans can do that animals can't do. And that is connect the dots. Or to see the way things are headed. And that you can see that in the fact that um, humans really love, um, let us say, understanding things like that. And one of the things that was developed is, the, is a graft. You know, in high school, we use graphs in mathematics in the sense that you can see that if you've got a point here and a point here, most likely the next point at this time frame is going to be up here. How do you know that? Dogs can't see that. Dogs cannot see that trajectory or that way things are headed. Mm -hmm. Okay. So, if a, uh, if a dog owner is bad to a dog, then he's bad again. The dogs want to come back because he doesn't connect those dots. But if you're bad to a child and then bad to that child again, the child on the third occasion is going to have those two first dots connected. Mm -hmm. Right. This is actually then what the, uh, the Dhamma is really about is, is that we have been making 
humans have been making a lot of connections all throughout our lives ignorantly without recognizing that we're connecting a bunch of dots together and children often make uh, dot connections wrongly. And so we need to reevaluate our dot connecting process. Because a lot of the old dots that we connected are wrong. So that means now that in uh, the wake up call is the wake up of let's start reconnecting or re let's start connecting dots now, now. In the present moment, let's start connecting the dots because the connecting of the dots that we're doing now is much more likely to fit the reality of the moment rather than using the old dot collection that we had many, many years ago that then we stored and now we're using it because it's easier to use old data than it is to go get new data. Wow. Yeah, that makes sense. <laughs> okay, so this is what's happening both on a long-term basis in the sense that you heard the Nama months ago, you've heard it again several months ago, and then you're on the plane today and you hear it again and finally you connect the dots. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so that's one of the ways of these connecting these dots is over a long term, but then there's also the way of connecting the dots that happened very, very fast, not instantaneously, but within, let us say, at least a half a second. And these are the kind of dots that you would have. You can see the breach and you can see the barrel and the tip of the barrel of a gun, and you know exactly where that barrel is pointed. Mm -hmm. Instantaneously, you connected the dots. You saw the trajectory of that gun. See, dogs can't pick that up. They don't know what a gun is, literally. They know a loud noise, and they may associate guns with loud noise. But the human has the ability to just see the gun and to know what's going to get shot if the bullet is fired. All right, because of that straight line trajectory and that kind of knowledge is something that humans have and you can see it picked up in all kinds of places, including art and music and the repetitiveness. Skyscrapers, look how repetitive skyscrapers are. One floor after another, after another, after another, after another, almost identical. That in fact, the... Um, um, Modern archaeologists, um, um, planners, oh, uh, I forgot the word, uh, not archaeologists, but uh, uh, the guys who make the plans for the buildings. They are making now new shapes because they began to see that repetitive nature was a bit boring. But they always have to do it according to, um, let us say, the engineering of um, the mass and the weight according to gravity and the strength. Okay. Uh, uh, and so uh, the angle of the dangle has to be supported. Mm -hmm. Right. That if you've got something like that, it either has to be supported here or it has to be supported back here. This support is tensile and this is pressure. Mm. Okay. 
but this thing has to have support. Otherwise, the fulcrum point down here is not going to be strong enough to hold that thing up. All right. This is engineering, but we use that engineering principle with everything that's built. The tiniest little toy truck, houses, high rise buildings, the way that computer cases are constructed, engineers always have to take this stuff into consideration over and over and over again because it's a natural principle. And yet, <clears throat> In living, we don't seem to have those engineering principles built in. If they do, then we actually automatically make them as rules. Rather than, um, and when I say rules, I'm talking to rules that have to be enforced. To where in engineering, the rules are not uh, enforced, you don't have to. You can have building codes because the codes want to do it in advance just to make sure that the building doesn't fall over. But the entire original interest in the engineering in the first place was building the building so that it wouldn't fall over. Right. Okay, so the building of our buildings inside our mind, we need to put some principles in there for support. And what is that? That's the repetitive nature. Keep putting support, keep putting support, keep putting support in there. Keep making it thicker, bigger, faster, longer. <clears throat> hey, by the way, um, Go ahead. taking just a couple of steps back and we can come right back, but I put something together with what you just said about the old dots that we connected versus the new dots or versus reality like this old dots versus what is reality right now and mm -hmm. i just put this together because the song that i've been listening to uh eric and i have been listening to that you shared uh the jesus christ superstar one i think the lyric is uh don't you know that everything is all right all right mm -hmm. and so she, she's saying like like don't you know right now everything is all right you know you're really going off of old programming right now like wake up don't you know everything right now in reality yeah. is all right. Mm -hmm. Use the new programming, use the new dots. Yes, exactly, exactly. Use the new dots. Look at what's happening right now. Right now, don't you know? In other words, can you see right now that everything yeah. is all right? Yes. Everything is fine. Not a worry. None. And you can sleep well tonight, I think, is one of the lines in that song. Uh -huh. Yes. Yes. Which means become freely. Try not to worry. Try not to get upset. Mm -hmm. These are the parts of that song that this is actually talking of it from a noble, I mean, from an ordinary place. But we're looking at it from a particularly noble view. Mm -hmm. Okay, everything is all right right now. Rather than just in general. Exactly. That's what we are looking, that's what humans are trying to do. They're trying to connect enough dots to make things general. This is what we mean uh, in the psychological phrase of grandiosity. Mm. Or another way of talking about it, over generalization. And we are actually taught to overly generalize. Possibly the funniest one is to recognize that there's no such thing as a Republican Party. 
but there's at least 300 million different views or versions of the Republican Party. Because everybody's yes. got their own ideas of what it is. Mm -hmm. And yet the Republican Party is not a thing. But it's a thing in the moment. But it's not one thing in the moment. It's 300 million different things in this moment. And then 300 million things in the next moment. And they may not be the same 300 million before. Because people are changing their minds all the time. Okay, but we overgeneralize when we talk about the Republican Party when, in fact, there is no such thing. Yeah. Okay, and so we get grandiose with this overgeneralization in the sense that if I feel a little bit bad now, and then I feel a little bit bad later, and then I feel a little bit bad after that, the human mind will connect the dots that everything is going to be bad off into the future. Right? <clears throat> and then we say, what a shit show this is. And there was only three turds. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Exactly. And, it, that, and, and this is what is magic about the number three. The number three is the number of dots that humans need to connect in order to give the idea that they know where the fourth dot's going to be. Mm. And that's how the mind works. And, and so this is why every list of items need to have at least three items on it, because there's only two items on that list. It's not convincing. Mm -hmm. Okay. <clears throat> so even if the third item is just a restatement of one of the other items, that's enough for most humans to let that three line or uh, three mark minimum go by. <clears throat> yeah. Yeah. I feel like sometimes that's uh, how I feel about the five Jhana factors, where it, like the the fourth or the fifth one is kind of like uh, just sustaining sustaining and then the fifth one is like collecting them all together so it's basically the first three actually it all has to do with one thing and that is is to remove the unwholesome thoughts from the mind and basically everything else would take care of itself after that mm. and this is why the buddha has that as such an important item that it's listed in every sutra the fact is or in fact uh the weird part of it is is that um in the anapanasati sutra the hindrances are never mentioned unwholesome versus wholesome is never mentioned but in fact what it does mention it goes right to the point in the sense of just gladdening the mind that's what the word that's used in uh the, the anapanasati sutra to where the others are uh, giving in detail of, of what's got to do. It's even interesting that there is a fairly long section in the Satipatthana Sutta that talks about each hindrance individually, and the last line of each of the paragraphs is, and the this hindrance must be removed. That's right there in, in the Satipatthana Sutta. The reason that I'm mentioning that is because it's the Satipatthana Sutta that is the darling child and the favorite 
of the Burmese, the Mahasi, and and uh, that group that is also, um, let us say, uh, closely aligned with the Basudi Maga. And the reason that I'm pointing that out is, is that if it's actually made a big point in the Satipatthana Sutta, then why isn't that a big point in their method of teaching meditation? Right. That in fact, if there's ever anything about the hindrances, they just say, oh yeah, the hindrances are to be avoided, and then they go off talking about all kinds of other stuff without recognizing that no, the removal of the hindrances is basically the whole show. That's the whole deal. <laughs> or the bad. other way of saying it is, is that, yeah, gladdening or brightening the mind, that's the whole show, that's the whole deal. This moment and this moment and this moment, one minute after the other, one moment after the other, repeating, 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 wholesome, 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 by repeating gladdening, brightening, happy, just having happy thoughts. That's all there is to it. And all of the other factors come right along with that. So you could say then that right sati to remember and right effort to actually put in gladdening thoughts, that in a way is the path. But mm-hmm. these other factors are really needed in order for us to understand what is wholesome and what is not wholesome. We have to have the right view. We have to come to understand that which is hot and painful so that we stop touching it. Yeah, I think that that's something that I encountered during my retreat was to pick up on that, um, I guess you could say, discernment of what's wholesome and what's not wholesome and also maybe even in the realm of right effort because um i think i was talking a lot about like talking to you about trying to get something that i didn't have basically mm-hmm. trying to you know get a genre or whatever it was uh and maybe sitting down to practice or sit talk trying to talk to myself in a certain way and then maybe like you know having an unwholesome thought that maybe I'm not, it's not working, but the, 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 what is, that was sort of the unwholesome thought in itself is to, is to sort of want something that's not there, whereas you could just be comfortable. And that's a way more wholesome way to, to keep it because it, that doesn't really get unwholesome, in my opinion. You could just keep it. <laughs> <laughs> that's just a wholesome thing to, to be comfortable, be relaxed. Everything's okay and everything's fine. Mm-hmm. That's, um, Robert just sent uh, two articles about art, about art being wholesome. Basically, it, they didn't use the word wholesome. That's our word. <laughs> but what they were talking about was the beneficial aspects of art. And uh, uh, Robert was asking about that. And so uh, the answer then about art is is that art is useful and valuable to humans because it is wholesome and and much of the art is wholesome simply because it is just uh let us say um just is without it being important it's just interesting and it doesn't have to tell any messages that a lot of art winds up being political art, which means it's got a message. 
But when art doesn't have to have a message, it could just be playful. And because yeah. it's just playful and without a message, it can be wholesome. Isn't that cute? Isn't that interesting? That's, in fact, what one, one of the thing, reasons why we like cartoons. Is the cartoons really don't mean anything. The Daffy Duck can run slam into a wall, and the next frame, he's up trotting around again. <laughs> Things just don't mean anything. Exactly, yeah. And so it's quite entertaining to watch Daffy Duck runs right into a wall. You don't want to see your friends run right into a wall because we connect the dots there that running into a wall is dangerous. You might break a nose or something else. <laughs> but cartoons or art um, is can be fearless. You go do anything in art. Because we don't have to have the meaning behind it. Those dots don't have to get connected in that same kind of way. And for this reason, art can be very wholesome, very valuable, beneficial to a, a community. Can you imagine how drab, for instance, Chicago or New York would be if there was no art? Yeah. I mean, there was uh, kids were not doing uh, wall art with their spray cans. There was no art on the uh, subway trains. There was no art in the, there was no art galleries. There was no museums. Yeah. Then it would be drab indeed that we can think of that kind of stuff is now we're looking at 1984. When everything is a drudgery because there's no art, there's no beauty, there's no color. Everything is either right or wrong, black or white. And and the humans get into that because it's basically that right or wrong, black or white, is in fact um, the critical mind, the judgment. This is good and this is better. This is the second noble truth. This is the cause of suffering, is this blacking and whiting of things, or seeing discretions or discriminations that are um, real differences, let's say. An example is, is that um, uh, at some levels, the black sea of uh, African-Americans in the United States and the whites, they're different. The culture is different. The language is different. That I don't know if you can do that, but whenever a black person answers the telephone and I do not know by seeing them, I can tell immediately that if this lady works for the bank, you know, I'm calling the bank. This lady answers, I know to treat this lady with great respect because she's an old black lady that don't get, that does not deal with guff easily. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. And so we can hear that. And the, so there's differences or distinctions, but the, but the reality is, is that other than the way that I was talking about it in this present moment, there's no real big differences between the blacks of America and the whites of America. We're all humans. We all have the same makeup and, and all of that kind of stuff. And so when we are looking at too much differences that we've been taught, we're not able to see the similarities. 
of what's there and what's what's really there and what's not there. So this is why this whole point about waking up so that we can really see what's going on so that then we know what trajectory to take to brighten this stuff up, to gladden it. Let's, let's, you know, let's put some color in here. Now we've got black and white lines, but we can turn that black and white lines into the picture of a chicken or an eagle or something by filling in the colors. Mm-hmm. All right. And so um, this is what we mean by filling in the colors is, is that we're paying close attention to what's really there rather than looking at things in order to make distinctions. The distinction would be he's black or he's white or he's Republican or he's Democrat or he's this, that or the other thing. And this is how we see things. Um, And so a much better way of seeing it is, is that, hey, he's a human being. He's my friend. He's my buddy. He's my brother. And we don't do that in the West. We see um, the other as competition. I can't let him sit down beside me because I want to stretch out. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's, that, that's a very good analogy for the whole problem of America. Is I don't want him sitting here because I want to stretch out. I do not want that factory in my backyard. We need that factory. That nuclear power plant or that um, uh, whatever it is, but not in my yard. Mm -hmm. So everything winds up being selfish or the discriminations that we have is the discriminations about what value it is for me versus whether value it is for us. And this is what the Buddha is really getting at is about the self and atta and no no self and anatta and all of that kind of stuff. But when Buddhism came to the West, we've got these issues of soul and religions and all that kind of other stuff. And so it gets mixed up with, with that kind of problem, which is actually a side issue. It's really not the issue. The issue is, is in this moment, are you going to be acting friendly, altruistically, uh, in love with the world? Are you going to be closed off, selfish, trying to protect that which you think belongs to you, when in fact it really doesn't belong to you anyway? An example of that is land ownership. 130 years ago, my great-great-grandfather bought a piece of land and he thought he owns it. Guess what? He's dead and he does not own that land. He's buried on it. It owns him now. And the same thing happens with a mortgage. People buy a house and they think they own the house and they wind up recognizing, wait a minute, this house needs to be taken care of. And I'm the only caregiver that it has, which means that now I am the mommy of this child, the house, which means that I don't own the house. The house owns me. Right. And I've got to go fix the toilet when it's broken. I've got to go because that computer is mine. I've got to go fix it. Right. 
And so we wind up being owned by that which we thought that we did own. This is the whole point about selfishness. The Buddha is recommending us to be friends, to open our whole world up, to start making some new connections, rather than seeing things in a small, selfish little way. And so uh, this actually is a major pointing of the teaching of the Buddha, because you can see that selfishness and protecting that which is delusionary mind is an unwholesome state of mind. It's an unwholesome thought. But a wholesome thought of here, let's share, let's get along together. This is all good. We can have fun together. Everything's all right. This is why it's wholesome is because uh, it prevents us from being in dukkha. Selfishness creates dukkha. It's mm-hmm. very interesting in the Patita Samuppada that it is the birth of these woeful states that leads to dukkha or is the dukkha and the cause effect. You can actually see that the, uh, that the, the, the teaching and the uses of the word Patita Samuppada, which means that anything that comes into existence, Sam is, is real or existence, and upada means coming into, is dependent, paticca. Everything that comes into existence is dependent. Nothing comes in on its own spontaneous, which means that dukkha has to have an announcement. Dukkha's got to have a, a cause, or it's got to have a conditioning or something that brings about the dukkha. One of the ways of saying it, then, is the self is actually the bucket that we carry around our suffering in. That the self is the bucket for dukkha. If you don't have a self, you can't carry any dukkha around. Yeah. And when we are selfish, that means that we are trying to separate ourselves from our environment to where your world or your environment actually is you. It's part of your sensory awareness and sensory uh, input that when the dogs come up on the porch, I am the dog. They just came on the porch. (laughs) (laughs) And I am the dog. Why? Because they've got my attention. So whatever we're paying attention to, in fact, becomes who we are. And if we're paying attention to the self, then that means that we are selfish. Mm. And that often our selfishness includes concepts that are in the mind, and we think that it's part of the world where, in fact, it's not. An example of that, that when you were on retreat, Chicago was just a concept. Now that you're back in Chicago, the room that you're in is real. Huh? But the rest of Chicago is just a concept. Mm-hmm. And that concept then is just a mentalization. So that means that it's my concept or in the case of you, it's your concept. So that means that everyone sitting in a room in Chicago 
understands the room that they're in, but when each one of them think, or actually everybody all over the world, when we think of Chicago, each individual one of us thinks Chicago differently. So if there's right. 10,000 people right now thinking about Chicago, that means there's 10,000 different Chicago's right now. Yeah. And only a few of them are real. Because it's a conceptualization and it is my conceptualization. So is my Chicago. This is the way that we be. So we think of it as my world and most of uh, each of person's my world is actually just a concept. And the reality is that which you can feel, that which you can see, that which you can touch, that which you can taste. So, that's so, go, so go going ahead. back to the, uh, the connecting the dots here and relating it to the selfishness like let's say you are selfless right now and everything is fine and everything's okay and you're not selfish, but you introduce um, let, let, let's say the the floor around you just happens to fall apart and now you are ten thousand feet above the ground and you become afraid of that height. You become afraid of heights now, or you're high up. You take your hike up to a mountain now, and now you are. Well, now wait a minute. Are you in a room? A are you on a floor that's dropped out? Are you 10,000 feet up? Look at how many different conceptual points that you've gone through. Yeah, so if you are selfless at the base of a mountain, mm -hmm. and then you make your way to the top of the mountain, but now what happened, what has happened once you become afraid, let's say you become afraid of now that you're so high up. So now you are, you're clinging to a self. Um, at that point, you've become selfish. Does the fear have anything to do with looking down and having the thought or the feeling of falling? Yeah. But you're not falling. Exactly. So you're conceptualizing falling and falling would be a very dangerous thing to do. So you conceptualize falling and then you feel afraid mm. because you've conceptualized falling. And that's your concept and it's a selfish and, thing to do mm -hmm. to conceptualize. Right. You can, you're, the selfish thing to do is to conceptualize falling. Then, in fact, that's one of the qualities of either in the circus or the high wire artist that is going to be walking the tightrope that stretched between two buildings. He does not ever have the thought of falling. He has the thought of balancing. Mm. <laughs> that is difficult for me to do. I feel like. <laughs> well, that's why you need to rehearse. This is where that that repetitive part comes in. And yeah. you need that with every step on that high wire. One thought yeah. of balancing after another thought of balancing after another thought of balancing. And if it's followed by one thought of falling, guess what happens? <laughs> that's what we said about um, the fear of like the sounds like the bears. Like you hear 
you either go into fear in the mind, the concept, or you continue to listen. Right. Because if you're continuing to listen, you're in the here now. And you're paying attention to what's going on. The only other option is here's something to go bump in the night and think about all the possibilities that it could be. And each one of them brings on fear. Just like the sight looking down brings on the thought of falling. And that's the fear. If we don't have fearful thoughts, thoughts of falling, then we don't have the fear. And if we have, if we don't have the fear and we're watching what we're doing, we're not going to fall. Yeah. That falling often happens because people are slipping their footing and they're slipping their footing because they're not watching where they're doing. And besides the foot wants to go where the mind has already taken it anyway. And the mind's already taken it right over the edge. So the foot wants to go too. That's how I felt on, uh, your feet literally start to tingle when you're up there. Have you, did you notice that? Tingle? Tingle, right. The feet become obviously aware. The feet want to do something when you're yeah. up on a very high place. It wants to back off or it wants to go over or something like that. But many people will experience in this, the sensation is, is that the feet are tingling when they're in that high place and looking over and having thoughts of falling. Yeah, they were shaking. Actually, the one of the big, uh, yeah, they were shaking. They were like, you know, weak. Um, but one of the things, too, was um, coming back down on these switchbacks on the steep downward hill like this. And so the concept is, and sometimes you do actually slide and I see people like sliding on their way down. And at the end of that, at my fingertips is the cliff is the drop off. Uh -huh. so you have to walk down that and then come this way. Right. It goes like that. And so that was like a very like scary thing, like trying to walk down and not slip and ride off over the right. edge. Like, this is the whole concept of the slippery slope. Yeah. Because at the end of the slope is the precipice. <laughs> yes. Yes. And while um, uh, sliding down the slope is, is often the easiest way to get to the bottom of that slope, sometimes that's a very dangerous thing to do. <laughs> Depends upon what's at the bottom of the slope. Is it just, you know, a meadow or <laughs> is it a precipice? <laughs> so, this whole thing then. Well, actually, it's funny was, you mentioned that. Go ahead. Continue that after this, but uh, Eric helped me out there because at a certain point, he, he mentioned that, and he actually grabbed these sticks for me. So like the switchback, actually, uh, at some places it was pretty steep, like an actual fall off. But um, for, at a certain point in the mountain, it was actually just a very another steep slope down. They didn't have to walk down. And Eric told me that when he was in Mexico, he was basically hiking that part of it. And essentially that could be hike. So even if you did fall off that um, switchback, 
you're on hikeable ground. You're not mm-hmm. just falling, free falling. And that was actually helpful for me. So yeah. Right. That um, uh, the angle of the slope is quite important. But often when there is fear, the angle of the slope in the mind is much steeper than the angle of the slope in reality. Yeah. That's one of the delusions that fear brings on. And the fear is coming with the thought of, I can't do this. I can't manage that. I'm a failure here. Poor me, what will happen? This is a, a victim's mentality. And that, in fact, one of the ways of getting over those kind of fears is by going out and experimenting, going hiking, going into the woods. People do this a lot. This is one of the reasons why uh, some people do skydiving is because they literally want to get over the fear of this falling. Yeah. And allow it to become exhilarating, to be marvelous. Yeah, so on that topic, I was actually, I had the idea um, that I would join, like, since I'm in Chicago here, it's like, I could try and find some woods, too, um, like, nearby, maybe for the weekend, but figured I'd start going pretty frequently to, like, these uh, rock climbing or bouldering gyms and just go high up. I'm not trying to give you any attitude or any plans. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, but I don't know, but I figured that'd be a good idea because, like, they might have, like, balancing stuff there you can train on and go high up and hang out up top, but yeah. This is one of the reasons why martial arts training and that kind of stuff is actually beneficial for a lot of kids because it helps them uh, be successful at something rather than being a failure in school and a failure in diapers and a failure in this, that, and the other thing. Now they can find something that they can do and do it really well. And that that gains um, a feeling of success. Because you know, when when you were growing up, most of the time, you felt like everything was dangerous, that you couldn't do anything, that you were a victim for all, that all the big kids for, I remember at one time with the with pool and the pool table, that the big kids wouldn't let the little kids play pool because the big kids knew how to play pool and the little kids didn't. So the little kids didn't get to play with the big kids when the big kids were playing pool. Right? How is a little kid going to learn to play pool? He's not, not while the big kids are saying you can't play. Yeah. Okay. So um, that's that's a lot of what happens with us is, is that we don't have an opportunity to gain the skills and that we're too afraid to take the opportunity to gain the skills. And so we stay victims, finding a few things that we can do but we never gained that confidence that you can do anything. Okay, so there are those of us, though, who go out and experiment to see if we can gain skills. We do martial arts. We do dancing. We do motorcycle racing. We do do those things because we want to feel 
like we're confident or that we can do, you know, that I'm all right. Basically, the distinction between being a winner and being a loser is whether I'm okay or or not. Am I okay or not? Or am I inadequate and not okay? And every child is born inadequate and not okay. Every one of us is is born inadequate and not okay. We need nurturing in order to survive. Look what kind of habits we get into as kids then. Being dependent. Always dependent, dependent, dependent. So now you're experimenting with things that are having you come out of that shell of dependency, knowing that you can do stuff on your own, that you can climb that mountain, that you can walk that ledge, that you can walk that log, that you can sit in the woods at night and listen without being afraid. But you couldn't have done that if you'd have sat there in Chicago for that week. So congratulations. Kijan, I'm really pleased. I'm really proud of you. You did a lot of stuff in one week. You you yeah. went for meditation and you got an education. <laughs> <laughs> yes. It's great. Getting that training. And so now you, you're getting that confidence. And that confidence really comes with that gladdening the mind over and over again. And when do you need to gladden the mind the most? When you're up there thinking uh, on that ledge, thinking about falling off. No, we need to gladden the mind right that moment. I can handle this. I'm not going to jump off this ledge. (laughs) (laughs) I'm okay. I'm not stupid enough to slip. Yeah. Okay. So you kind of think that I don't necessarily, I, I mean, do you think that that's a good idea? I thought it was a good idea to try, you know, to continue working with this, you know, getting comfortable high up, that kind of thing. Um, but perhaps you're saying that more so the the mental talk is the primary. Um, thing Precisely. And that you only need that particular thought when you're in that particular situation and you're just going to go from one situation to the next then in fact you are going to go from one high place to the next just some of them are different kinds of heights all right that in fact this is what we mean then about the noble mind is is that if you are going to let go of the fetters that are keeping you grounded, even grave, then in fact the word grave means solid ground. And so you can either be grounded in the grave or you can let go of all the dirt. And then what's going to happen is that you're going to soar, you're going to fly mentally. All right, so now we're going to be reaching new heights of the mind that you've never experienced before. You're going to let that fear of heights get in your way now. Because there is a time when you do begin to see that in whatever criteria that you're using, an example would be the criteria of um, uh, morality. Or we can even define it down to just one little aspect of morality. Uh, Let us say harsh speech. 
harsh speech when we get angry. We have harsh speech. And so when you get the mind cleaned out and you're in the heights of nobility, you do not have that moral grounding. What you have instead, the moral grounding means that you should not do that. It's wrong. It's not where we're coming from at all anymore. That's the bottom line. The other, the other is, is that look how far below those angry people are. Wow, it would be really dangerous if I would <laughs> fall into that. Okay, and so another way of looking at it is, is that you really are above it. That there is no chance of you falling into anger. All right. So that's just another example, except now we're just walking down the street and hearing two people arguing with each other as opposed to being on top of a mountain looking down over the side. But it's the same issue. The fear of falling back into being immoral is the very thing that will cause you to fall into immorality. But if you say, hey, man, I'm not about to get angry. There's no reason. I'm not interested in being angry at all. I'm not going to go there. I'm not going to fall into that. Yeah. Okay. So there's many different ways that we can fall. We can fall into anger. We can fall into sadness. We can fall off a ledge. We can <laughs> fall into bad company. There's all kinds of ways that we can fall down. And for that reason, we need to be in this moment about what this ledge is that we're walking on. Okay. You don't have to go seek out real ledges on the top of real mountains in order to get over your fear of falling. You can practice that right out on the streets of Chicago. Isn't that amazing? <laughs> Just to say, it's the same thing. This moment, are we going to be afraid and then fall into what we're afraid of, are we going to be absolutely above it? Not a chance I'm going to fall over that ledge. Either okay. into the precipice below or into anger or into sadness or whatever like that. So circling back to what you were saying about engineering and building up the buffer, building up the supports, we're going to continue to build the support such that we are well, um, I mean, grounded is not the way we're, we're trying to do the opposite of ground, but we're, we're grounded in not falling into that fear. We're grounded atop. Right. Mm -hmm. Atop, atop the fear of whether it's an actual ledge or an argument or a moral dilemma or whatever it is. Mm -hmm. Exactly. That you're above it now. You're the king. You're in charge of this show. Even if you're dealing with the man that everybody in the room calls the boss. Inside your own mind, you're still the boss. You're the boss here. Okay. And you're, and you're not about to go jump off of that ledge because you're afraid of it. Because you're not afraid of it. You're not afraid of that boss, that you're the boss here. Okay, so by 
the, the same analogy or the same process we use to not fall off the ledge. We focus on balancing, not fall off mm-hmm. the ledge, or we focus exactly. on listening to not become afraid of things in the night. And then we do, you know, whatever technique we need to focus on listening to the boss instead of becoming afraid of what he's saying type of thing. Um, and are you still here? Yeah. So, so, so we, we stay in the senses and we build the foundation. We build the wholesome thoughts, one wholesome thought after another living in this waltz of repeating, um, this process that builds these supports and then we maintain a stance of being above it all. Precisely. Okay. And in in that regard, I mean, the analogies tend to get confused because basically, uh, remember that uh, Stubby K um, tune that I sent? Sit down, you're rocking the boat. Yeah. Okay. This is this whole point about we ro- we were rocking our own boat when all we would have to do is sit down that the thoughts of falling over the side are the kind of thoughts that we have when we're standing up rocking our own boat. Right. That we're rocking our own boat. Here's another example of that is, is that uh, remember we were talking about the high wire act and that the, 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 the wire sags and because it, you know that it sags, you can see the sag in it. But what you don't see is that if there is movement enough to make the, the wire sag, it's also going to be moving back and forth, which makes it unsteady and unstable, especially with the way that the feet are doing it. So the feet have to be steady enough so that they can absorb the back and forth motion of the wire when we're there. Now, the next point is, is that when one step, let us say you've got a foot here and you're about to move this foot. If you move that foot in a way that twists the wire, when you go to move, things are going to get all screwed up. So that means that when you're lifting this foot, you have to do it straight up. You have to do it straight up. This is one of the things that is taught in a good martial arts class is exactly how you've got to do it. This is also the whole point about a um, uh, it happens both in tennis and in golf that exactly the way that you're holding the racket and exactly the way that you're holding the clubs matter. Just like exactly the way that you pick up your foot on that high wire matters, because if you pick it up so that you're putting pressure to move the wire sideways, you're actually making things unstable. The same thing is in a boat. The right way to do is to get your center of gravity low when you're in a boat. That's also the reason why they have that pole. The real the uh, high wire artists um, that are doing really dangerous stuff will always do it with a really long pole. You know why? Because that pole, the very ends of those poles uh, is what creates the balance. Because if you're moving the pole just a tiny little bit here in the middle, that pole, when it moves here, if it's 10 feet long, means that that end of that pole has to move four or five feet. That takes quite a lot of energy. And so by having a long pole that we're handing, just holding it still means that it's got a stability built into it. 
Okay, this whole issue of the stability is what we're talking about. This is what OPECA is all about. It's a dynamic balance. And you can see the OPECA in the, um, the high wire. You can see it in golf. You can see it in uh, uh, martial arts. You can see it in tennis. You can see it in many, many uh, sports in the sense of very tiny little things will create instability. And so watching what creates the instability, guess what? That's what we're doing. The thought, the thought, just a tiny little thought of falling over the edge is enough to create fear. Tiny little movement in the mind creates enormous outcome. Just like standing up, standing up in the boat's not a big deal. But if you stand up in the boat <laughs> and have thoughts of falling over the side, guess what happens? Right over the side you go. <laughs> and so the this is uh, uh, the issue of equanimity. Another way, you know, because we've talked about it, that in the mind's development, the first thing that we want to do is to get the mind free from hindrances so that we have the sukha. And when the sukha builds up into pity in the first jhana, uh, the next stage is, is to let some spaces come in the wholesome thought so that we can really experience the pity, so that things get really, really feeling good. But then that feeling good, we begin to understand that, hey, feeling this good actually work. <laughs> It's not nearly as much work as hindrances. It's not nearly as much work as falling off the edge or thinking about falling off the edge. But uh, cackling with laughter over the fact that I don't have to fall off the edge is also a bit of work. And mm -hmm. so we let that subside and we let that subside into just pleasure or just joy. But then the joy subsides into what we would call complete relaxation or just equanimity. Another word that we could actually use would be um, serenity. But uh, serenity can only happen when we don't have any of this wavering going on at all. Which means that to be in a state of serenity, we have to be really, really sharp to prevent anything from like foot wiggling or something that's going to make the world. Yeah. Uh, so any, so. so basically it's kind of like the development of two main skills, which is knowing the difference between the wholesome and the unwholesome thought, because any thought that's tinged or, or just, you know, a drop of unwholesomeness is going to cause a little wobble, but mm -hmm. not only that, but being fast enough to sort of, uh, keep the stream going in the positive direction precisely in other words you even though you know that you're creating a few wobbles you still have the set the skill of that foot to maintain your balance even though you've caused a bit of wobble yeah catching it catching mm -hmm. it you catch forgiven it. really quickly and getting glad really quickly again mm -hmm. that on some occasions uh, perhaps in a high wind or because of lack of skill or something like that, that the high wire artist will actually have the the string wobbling or the, the cable wobbling back and forth enough to where people can actually see it from the ground. 
And then you go oh, like that because they can see the wobbling of the line. What they also need to look at is not only is the wobbling of the line, he's also wobbling with it while he's maintaining his balance to try to get the line so that it's not wobbling anymore and he can maintain his balance while he's up there. It's good to watch our artists because that's Dhamma in a way, is to watch the fact that they can, even when the wire is um, unbalanced, when it's wavering back and forth, he still with the upper part of his body maintains his center of gravity while he's using the power of his legs to steady the wire again. Mm -hmm. Because if he doesn't, that wire is going to go <laughs> off the wall where he can't keep it. He can't maintain his upper uh, torso uh, center of gravity, and then he's going to fall. Yes. Um, and so that's a great, I mean, that, that makes a lot of sense. And so just as an aside, we continue on where, where I like where this is going, but just an aside. It sounds like what we can do is put the mind in a place where we could potentially be, you know, we could be unafraid and fearless in that same position that the high wire artist is, but we likely wouldn't actually be able to successfully do the walk because he's got the uh, physical repetition training in there of actually moving the muscles and 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 how to how to operate that system precisely properly. he learned to do that when it wasn't dangerous okay yeah. so he doesn't have to ever have a thought of fear while he's in training this is why they trained with the wire only a foot above the ground so that if he falls off the wire he's not going to get hurt in fact he can just step off of it when he's wobbling yeah. okay so we need to train in a safe environment. This is what seclusion is really all about, is to mm -hmm. get in ourselves into a really safe environment so we can practice being safe. Yeah. It's hard to tell ourselves everything is safe and no problem when we're riding on the subway. That's not a good place to practice it until we practice it when we really are safe. Yeah. I feel like it was another level of uh, safety. Like when I was in my apartment, like just completely alone, like nothing to bother me now. Like it's really, e really easy. Mm -hmm. That's another one that, uh, that we can talk about too, that while you were out in the woods, everything was new. You needed a whole lot of sati. You had to remember, you had to wake up, you had to be on guard, you had to do all of this kind of stuff that we do to go to the, uh, to the forest. But when you came back home, wow, you can say, wow, I really do feel safe now. Mm -hmm. Oh, wow, I could really relax. Guess yeah. what? You could have spent a week in your apartment, and at the end of that week, you would have sat in the apartment and not felt that safe and secure feeling that you did because you had been out there in the woods practicing being safe and secure. So when you got home, wow, that safe and secure could really set in. Yeah. Yeah. So I understand what you're talking about, that it's a big enough deal that you can actually mention it because you saw it. Wow, does this feel good to finally be home? <laughs> 
even outside feels safer, <laughs> like in the city. But yeah. Uh huh. So this is actually the feeling then that we're looking for in general, so that you feel safe and secure and at home wherever you go. And this has a two stage process. Number one stage is to develop the feeling of feeling secure, which is what we're doing on. And then the other one is to develop the wisdom to know what's actually dangerous and what's actually not dangerous so that we avoid actually dangerous situations so that now we can feel secure because our wisdom is keeping us safe, not the survival instinct. Yeah. That we're staying safe because it's the wise thing to do. So it's a wise thing to do to lock your door. Because you know that you're more safe. Mm-hmm. Just like it's a wise thing to do is to take the vaccine. The wise thing to do is to wear the mask. Why? Because it's the safer way out and we're looking for safety, security, comfortable and uh, fearlessness. So the best way to be fearless is to be well protected from the dangers. Yeah, through our wisdom. So once we have that in going, we really can practice the fearlessness. Because we've dealt with the old fears that brought up in childhood that we were raised as a victim. Now that we're a winner, we're also going to do it in the way that we're a wise winner. Okay, so a foolish winner will always want to test his winning capability. He will actually go out and cause contest. The big tough dude wants to show everybody what a big tough dude he is, right? But yeah. that's, that's not confident wisdom. That's just being a tough guy that someplace inside he's actually hiding fear. Everybody else sees that he's a big, powerful dude, but himself. That's why he's trying to prove that he's a big, powerful dude. It's because he doesn't quite believe it yet. But a whole different way of operation is let's become fearless first, and then we will apply wisdom to where we're always doing things safely. In this regard, then we can say that the, uh, you've heard the term the strong, silent type, that real strength does not have to be demonstrated. That the real big gorilla, why bother to trounce that little gorilla? All I have to do is just glance at him and he gets the point. <laughs> yeah. So this is the this is the power of wisdom. The wisdom that is only powerful because it's already fearless. Okay. That's like the wisdom after you sent me like the little paragraph, a little quote there was uh, like you've kind of free the heart. And then you connect that with the wisdom. Mm-hmm. That's right. That's the way to go. And there's an ultimate to that in the sense that so long as we were afraid, we are generally unfriendly with that which we're afraid of that we see ourselves as separate from that. 
And not only that, but wanting to escape and get some distance between us and that. When we begin to finally feel that at homeness, that complete satisfaction of comfort and security and safety and satisfaction of feeling at home, that means we can continue to feel at home while we have invited guests. And pretty soon we learn ultimately that we can invite any and all guests. One at a time, I don't have to deal with seven billion people all at once but I can deal with each one of them one by one as they occur without having to even count. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Okay. This is another way of talking about then this, this concept of at one moment or the concept of merging with reality or becoming one with reality cannot be done through magical power trips or any of the other stuff, it only can be done through friendship. The only way that you can actually merge with reality is by being its best friend. By being at one with it, which means you're at home with it, which means that it's safe and secure and comfortable and happy and friendly. This is why the Buddha talks about friendship is the whole Dharma. That's the whole show. That's all there is to it, is just be friends with this present moment. If we can remember to stop looking over the edge, thinking we're going to fall. Then, in fact, we can look over the edge and see how beautiful and marvelous it is from this view. I remember specifically during that on top of the Empire State Building because the people from the top of the Empire State Building are so small that it's even difficult to tell whether that speck is a human or not. Is it moving or is it standing still? If it's standing still, you don't even know if it's human. (laughs) It's that far away, but it's marvelous. It's not a marvelous view. But a lot of people feel really terrified. They don't want to go up there because you think about falling over the side. Yeah. So the, uh, that's also the point that we were making about uh, the view of going around and if you're feeling at home all the time, then you feel safe all the time, which means that you can look over the edge and see how marvelous things really are without being afraid of it. And so you become at home with everything. Everybody's your friend. Yeah. And you become at one with everything. Everything's your best buddy. Even that thing that goes bump in the night. Hey, (laughs) you're my best friend. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Because I'm not afraid of it. Yeah. So this is the way that things are moving. And this is why we talk about fear so much, because that's the bottom line. Fear is the language of the self-preservation mechanism, the number one um, instinct. And that's the instinct that comes up when you're looking over the side with the thought of going over the side. And so that instinct comes up, the fear is there, when in fact you could look over the side and say, wow, how marvelous this is. 
wow, how beautiful, how marvelous things are. I can look at them finally from a perspective of friendship. Everything's okay. Yeah. So this, and this all again is just coming from a, a, a result of that correct practice that we, we kind of talked about. Mm -hmm. And in that note, on that note, I was uh, today, I was listening to like, like I said, I was re-listening to that talk and I really felt like I got it. Um, and there's something else, just because you mentioned the, the waltz with the repetition and the rhythm and um, that kind of thing. And I, and I just found that that was a, I just started like even playing that like, Da, da, wait, what what is that song by the way? It's like um da 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 da, da, da. I, I think I got it wrong. That's five times in a row. It's the same sequence over and over before he changes it. Okay, so that's rhythm for you, or that's that's cadence, or that's repetition. And yeah. the name of that, by the way, is the Blue Danube. The what? The Blue Danube. It's a waltz. Okay, the Blue Danube. Right, Danube is a river in Germany. Oh, okay. Okay, so... And that's like I think about that, and I, I like you know I was almost using that as like okay this is going to be my rhythm like I've got yeah the it's a walk it is that's <laughs> <laughs> one like wholesome 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 yes it is over like and over and over again just da 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 yeah yeah do you think that it's um a good idea or a, a bad idea or whatever to because I after uh like while I'm just you know maybe doing whatever going about my day if i'm like listening to like something like that to help me uh keep sati in that way like an anchor in a bit in a way yes yes there is um over time i have refined the way of and, speaking wait i don't want to cut you off again but it almost because i was doing that you know it was almost feeling like a movie when they do start to play that music and you, you're playing that in your room while you're doing whatever, and it's really like you're living that. You know, it's great. <laughs> exactly. Absolutely, yes. The um, uh, the the feeling of movement, the feeling of uh, uh, freedom, moving. To where, in fact, if you're looking down over the edge, thinking about falling, that's almost like a freeze. We're frozen. Mm -hmm. To where this is, no, I'm completely free. I'm completely safe. I can waltz around. I can jump around. I can play. Right. Yes. I've heard it said that angels, they say, can fly because they take themselves so lightly. Hmm. <laughs> wow yeah wow so that's what we mean by gladdening the mind or let's lighten up nothing is important that that's the beauty of art that art is just is and is beautiful because it's not important it's not a political 
hit piece or whatever. Yeah. That it just is. It's beautiful. And so um, let's talk about music for just a moment, because a lot of Western Buddhists get the idea, and I can understand why, about that you should not be listening to music any time ever. And uh, the answer to that is, first off, that in the, um, in the precept, which came from much later time after the Buddha, these precepts, and that the five and the eight and the ten precepts all came later that this was not a teaching of the Buddha. Uh, so specifically, Nacha Gita Watida Visukha Dasana. Look at that Visukha Dasana. Okay, Dasa here means a slave. So Visukha Dasana means being a slave of looking for desire in Nacha Gita and Vatida, which is like a stage play or an entertainment. Yeah. Okay. And Nacha Gita, Nacha is dancing and Gita is singing. That in fact, um, I know a number of Thai monks that practice yoga. I also know of a Western monk who his name was actually um, Thomas, who was from Germany. He was a good friend of mine, and he did Tai Chi. And Achan Po actually gave him specific places to go to practice Tai Chi because he did not want the Thai people to accuse him of dancing because he was practicing Tai Chi, which is a form of mindfulness meditation. Right? And also, uh, I found out from a good friend of mine who was a Thai, who was really, really excellent at yoga. And when he was in the United States, he would practice out on the grass because in the United States, nobody cares. But in Thailand, he can't practice yoga outside. He's got to do it indoors because he does not want to see Thai people look at him and think that he's making the mistake of doing uh, the Nacha Gita Watidavasukadasana, that's a, a precept. Right. Okay. So let's look at what's going on there. There's another point about the uh, Nacha, and that is the Gita. And the Gita means song or singing, or uh, Western people, when they hear the word Gita, or actually, then when they translate it, they translate it as dancing in all of music, as if all music is bad. And yet the word Gita is actually used wholesomely in the suttas. In the sense that there is the Terry Gita and the Tara Gita, which are actually documents. The whole name of the work is the songs of the bhikkhus, the songs of the uh, the elders. Okay, the music of the, the elders is something that's allowed and and um, uh, let us say applauded in Buddhism, while Western Buddhism says that music is a no-no. To where really what's going on is it's not the music itself, it's um, uh, the watida, 
and you can hear the word uh, wati in there is the word for voice or uh, basically what wati da is is to look at entertainment to go to plays and this is what the buddha was referring to is that monks don't go out at night to go to shows and entertainment because the people would be aghast to see the monks at the entertainment yeah okay but the monks are not interested in sensual entertainment or sensual desires. And in that regard, we also have to understand that the music of the time of the Buddha was pretty honky tonk. Tribal drums, sexual and war drums and that kind of stuff, much more primitive kind of music. To where since especially the Middle Ages, we have had a whole different genre of music called sacred music. And so we begin to have to see the difference between what is unwholesome music and what is wholesome music. Rather than just saying all music is bad, all music is unwholesome is the way that many people look at it rather than recognizing, no, there's some music that's quite wholesome. An example would be uh, that heavy metal hard rock, gangster rap. I mean, the labels that they have there is unwholesome. So probably <laughs> the music is also. Yeah. Okay, it depends upon the kind of chords that they're playing and most specifically the kind of language that they're using. To where many songs, even if uh, the, the joy within that song has to do with finding your love affair or finding the one in your life that you could finally fall in love with. That doesn't necessarily have to be boy on girl sexual kind of stuff. That James Brown, when he's talking about, I feel good, he's talking about feeling good because he feels good, not because he's got four young women dressed scantily, shaking as hard as they can on stage with him. <laughs> Yeah. Okay. That is the feeling of feeling good. I feel good like I knew I would now. Mm -hmm. I feel good. I feel good. I've got you. Dom, 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 dom. Okay. That part of the song then goes in the direction of unwholesome in the sense that the idea of it is I can only feel this good because I've got someone who feels this good towards me. Rather than recognizing, no, this is just a love affair. It's got nothing to do with sexuality. It's got to do with the fact that we can make each other feel really good. And so we can take that unwholesome quality out of the song and put the quality of wholesomeness right into it if the song itself is tinged that way. But another one would be like um, um, Ode to Joy. Now, Beethoven didn't write over. You know, actually, uh, I was going to say, but let's not lose the the, top, the train of thought there, but I was going to say that you could do that. Like the, I noticed that you could sometimes put certain films or songs, as you're saying, and sort of take the unwholesome out of it, or you could see the Dhamma in it. Like, there's this one, uh, like Scarface, I would imagine, is probably on the relatively unwholesome list of movies. But there's this one scene in the Scarface that I saw um, on the YouTube, which he's in a restaurant and the wife 
is like high on drugs and you know he can't have a kid with her and he's around all these really rich old people um and he kind of like goes on this rant where he's like is this what i did it all for like to, <laughs> to have this this uh junkie wife trophy wife and to be look like all these old mummies these old rich mummies here that don't really live fully that you know rely you know that that he kind of went on like um and, and i likened it to basically like the buddha waking up in the palace exactly exactly that in fact that's what a lot of music is it's a wake up an example of that that i liked it it, it looks unwholesome until you get the point and that is the margaritaville song do you know that song sounds familiar but no okay um it's actually on YouTube. You can just go to the Margaritaville song uh, in the YouTube scan to find it. Basically, what it is, is uh, it's a story about a guy who has lost his girlfriend. He's in Mexico and he's sitting in a bar drinking margaritas. Mm-hmm. Um, and the line goes something like this. Some people say there's a woman to blame, but I know. It was my own damn fault. Okay, so there's Dama in there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that 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 it's always our own fault. We got our own finger in our own pie, and that we're causing our own problem. That yes. it, that it wasn't that we slipped and fell off of the ledge. We thought our way off of it. By exactly. being afraid of going off of the edge. <laughs> so if we think that it's her fault, that means that we're stuck in doing the same wrong thing over and over again. But if we recognize that this relationship ended because it was my fault, then we can improve the next one. And so this kind of wholesomeness is built into the music, but they have to pick the, pull, pull out the picture of the problem. Now, there's something very interesting about that whole point that I just made, going back to Beethoven's Ninth Symphony, that the last movement, the final movement of that symphony is the Ode to Joy, and the, uh, the poem that he set it to music is an, was an old poem, but it really did get him. So what Beethoven did, he didn't take the poem and set the poem to music. He cut and pasted and chopped to make that poem repetitious to the point that the five-minute poem takes 20 minutes to sing. Because it's over and over and over and over again. And not only that, but the God that he is praising in there winds up not being a Christian God. It is all reality. Um, it's really interesting. Um, in fact, um, uh, I'll send you a link that has the, um, uh, the English language translation done by, actually it's eight groups. It's the soprano chorus, the uh, solo soprano, uh, down to the chorus bass and the bass um, soloist. And so you've got eight different groups here all singing the same music at one point um the uh, the solo of uh, the 
soprano as well as the whole chorus is singing one line, but the soloist gets stuck on a whole bunch of notes in one word while the whole rest of the chorus go around and around and around and then they come back and repeat it just in time for her to finish it at the same point that they do. It's just really brilliant. This is the kind of music that just really stirs people when they understand the complexity and the brilliance of this kind of music. But it's still all about, actually, many people have the opinion, and it looks like that it was true, that Beethoven wrote this thing when he was almost completely deaf, couldn't hear anything. Not only that, but he resented God for allowing him to create such beautiful music, and he couldn't even hear it. I mean, talk about a catch-22. <clears throat> yeah. An absolute, over-the-top, world star music com composer cannot even hear his own music. What kind of attitude are you going to have to your maker who made you deaf and also the star of the musical world? I mean, talking about irony. <laughs> <laughs> and so that's what this Ode to Joy is all about. And it's about brotherhood. It's about friendship. It's about bringing things together. It's got a little religious stuff in it, but you can look right through that to see what he's saying is absolutely brilliant. I think, I think that the Ninth Symphony, the, uh, the final movement of the Ninth Symphony, is in fact his, his death. But it's a high quality, high class, very best quality death that one can have. This is Death March. Or death? Death. Death. He died. That was his final piece of music. He didn't need any more music after that. That was his. That was it. So, are you getting all of this from the uh, the poem with words, or is it coming from like this just the sound? Both together. Okay. They have the power together. You can hear it in there. That that the words "joyful, joyful, we adore thee" doesn't mean much, but when you sing it. It's joyful, joyful, we adore thee. It's got power and it's got strength behind it. Bum, 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 bum. It's a, it's a victory. I'll go listen to it again. <laughs> and I invite you to. It's really a, an amazing piece of music. The nice but, symphony, right? The Ninth Symphony, Symphony Number no. Nine. It's called the Ode to Joy. An ode is a poem, and it is literally a poem of the joy of death. Okay. And it is about brotherhood, and it's about we are all one together. It is really the culmination of the uh, the power of. I, I would go so far as to say that. Um, that Beethoven was kind of a natural lion. Mm. Wow. <laughs> that's pretty rare. Right. Very rare. And that's why all of the professional musicians that are really into the intricacies and uh, the, the beauty of music 
put Beethoven as such a high place is because he really understood the power of repetition. But that's what that, that was in fact part of what we studied in music school, where many many composers will have uh, a long uh, thing that is repeated, like a chorus or whatever. Beethoven had it down to one measure. Everything he did, he did it in one measure, and it was finished. Da 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 da. That's the whole show. <laughs> wow. Is there anybody else who's like? Uh, you know, like you like a lot of people say like Michael Jordan's like number one and then like LeBron James is like debatable to be number one number one also, but he's probably number two. Is there anybody who's like, you know, on the level of Beethoven, you think? I would have to say that that will not be known for a hundred years. Mm. Like for instance, the popularity of Elvis. Why is that? Because Elvis took standard pop music in the white culture and blended it with the black culture. That's what Elvis did. But in fact, when Elvis was a teenager, when he learned to play the piano, he learned to play it at a black honky-tonk in the South. And so he was able to take and make that bridge And so Elvis will endure. He's already stood the test of nearly a hundred years. Not quite yet. Wow, yeah, that's true. <laughs> wow. Real classics. Yes. That's what we mean by classic, is, is that it can stand a hundred years. That's what the word antique actually means. Is the furniture is not really an antique until it can be proven to be a hundred years old. That's a whole lot of here nows. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So back to that point about music, that we can't not just say all music is bad, but we have to look at that there are certain aspects of it that's unwholesome and certain aspects of it that are wholesome. And that we have to work with the wholesome quality and avoid the unwholesome. Yeah, I mean, like, to just say it's all unwholesome is just the, the children's dhamma, basically. Right, that's that's beginner, basic children's dhamma. Yeah. And I'm not even sure that that's a valuable teaching, because Nacha Gita Wata Devi Sukhadasana is not even a, um, a children's precept, but they give the children the five precepts. So don't steal, don't kill, don't lie. Um, uh, even sexual misconduct is not for the kids because they're not sexually active enough. So I guess you could say it's for kids and teens. Um, but that uh, the Nachigita Watida Visukadasana is for monastics or um, people who have left the world anyway. And the reason for that would be because if you have left the world, then why would you return to the world to go to the nightclub, to go to the show? 
And in the time of the Buddha, we didn't have any recordings. There was no videos. Any entertainment had to be live entertainment with a live audience. And that was the live entertainment with the live audience is what the Buddha was actually pointing out. That it's not appropriate for monks to be in that kind of situation. And it's got nothing to do with whether the music in that place is wholesome or not. But since we are not in the case of going to actually movies and shows and whatnot, that we can actually now look more closely at whether this particular music is wholesome or not. Mm-hmm. Why? Because it's wholesome. If it's saying wholesome things and repeating wholesome things over and over again, not only is it just merely wholesome, it's actually part of our practice. Yes. So I was saying, like, I was playing the music, and I, I was in the shower, and so it was, like, keeping me mindful. It was just, like, you know, like, watching the hands and um, paying paying attention, but paying attention wholesomely and reinforcing it with the... Absolutely, that's right. That um, that we can use the the repetition of the music or the repetition of the meter of a poem. This is why people like a poem so much. Why can a poem about Santa Claus be so beautiful is because it's written that way because of the meter. It's iambic pentameter. You, you probably know the poem. Twas the night before Christmas and all through the house, not a creature was stirring, not even a mouse. The stockings were hung by the chimney with care and hope that St. Nicholas would soon be there. While my unmarsh kerchief and I in my cap had just settled down for a long winter's nap when out on the lawn there arose such a clatter I sprang from my bed to see what was the matter away to the window I flew like a flash I tore open the shutters and busted my ass the moon on the breast of the new fallen snow gave a luster of midday to objects below when what to my wondering eyes should appear but a miniature sleigh and eight tiny reindeer well, we'll stop there. But anyway, you get the point. It's and you enjoyed it. Look, you got just right into it. You were listening. Why? Because of the meter. It was the repetition. There's that frontal cortex on the dot da dot da dot da dot da dot da dot da dot. Look at that thing go. It's just going on and on and on and on and on and on and on like that. And the human brain enjoys that repetition. Then in fact, that's what quality that defines what music is as opposed to noise because noise is not repetitious it's random yeah okay you know i noticed that kind of about my own uh uh gladdening the mind and sort of talking to myself because i noticed sometimes i might get into uh maybe saying one gladdened thought and another gladdened thought, but kind of in a disjointed way. But if I sort of introduce maybe a, a third piece, uh, a new piece sort of, or, you know, they add a, it's a wonderful day and um, that kind of thing and start to connect it a little bit, it, it, it becomes more effective. Yes, exactly. That, that, the connecting dots, that's what you're talking about. The little things that connect these dots, the, the, the tiniest little details 
can matter. That's why we want to do this investigation, to really look at what's going on, to really understand why the repetition works the way that it does. How is it that a human being can look at a shotgun and know exactly where that bullet's going to hit? Just by looking at the gun, I can tell where it's going to hit. Yep. We do this all the time. But we don't do it with knowledge and we don't do it wholesomely. But we're making these connections constantly. And a lot of the connections that we made years ago, we rely upon those connections without making new ones in the present moment because it's work. It takes that frontal cortex. We've got to put that thing in gear to connect those dots. That's what right effort is all about. We're putting that thing in gear, stop using the old data and start getting some new data in. Yes. Start to listen to the fact that things are happening over and over and over and over and over again. We have to start watching that. <laughs> yep. All of these words, by the way, have polyequivalents. Samsara is that over and over and over again is the word samsara. All of the pre-connected dots that we have already remembered, those are what we call the uh, sankara. So all of this stuff is right there in the Pali. The Buddha knew all about this kind of stuff. We're just using a new, fresher language for the people of today to understand what the teachings were. And it's all about getting the mind into a really wholesome state. Because what else is there to life other than living our lives happily? Yeah. Exactly. And no, and nobody needs power to be happy. You don't need any power. You can just be happy without it. Look how many people are miserable because they don't have power and they want it and they're struggling to get it and they don't get it and they're unhappy because they're unsuccessful. Yeah, I mean, that, power I, is from the inside. <laughs> the realization that I had, I think, was like also uh, there's really only one other way to do this. And it's just going to be a big pity party or just, you know, do uh -huh. Exactly. This is why it's all about wake up and look at what you're doing. That's the whole teaching of the Buddha. I mean, there's so many different ways of saying the whole show in just one line. Yep. Wake up and look at what you're doing is one of them. Don't worry, be happy. That's another one. I like that one. <laughs> But getting it down to one word would be friends. We're all friends here. Yes. And I'm really pleased that you went to the woods. You got something out of it. I'm con congratulations. You did great, Keyshawn. Thank you. <laughs> and I'm, I'm really glad that Eric was out there with you. Yeah, he's, me too. He's a good friend. <laughs> yeah. Great. Well, let's finish this call now, and later we'll uh, we'll talk about um, uh, the YouTube site. We need to get back into gear with that a bit. Yes. But we'll talk on that later. Okay. All right. Well, we'll see you. See you. Hold on. Don't worry, be happy. <laughs>